Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. And a very warm welcome to you to St. George's Church on uh, this uh, holiday weekend. We are glad that you're here. Um, Our reading from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is really at the heartbeat of what Christianity is all about. Namely, that Jesus in real time, in real history, physically rose from the dead. Not some sort of metaphor, not some sort of supra-history, but in real time, real history physically rose from the dead. And what this means is, is that if Jesus in real time physically rose from the dead, then a central component to the message of the gospel is that in Jesus, justified by grace alone, we too shall in real time, real history rise from the dead as well. I'm not talking about a walking dead sort sense of resurrection. I am talking about a, uh, a glorious, glorious resurrection into life eternal. Now, throughout history, humankind have had some sort of concept of immortality. Immortality uh, specifically of the soul. You know, we've been captivated by this so- story of soulscape. And the soul living on after your body. The afterlife is some sort of disembodied soul existence that gets swept up into the divine. Sort of like that movie Ghost. Go to the light. Go to the light. I love the movie Ghost. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible lie beautifully told. But uh, anyway, um, there it is. And... Um, But in Hinduism, you know, and in Buddhism, in the New Age, the concept of reincarnation is part of the soul living on as we go through uh, life after life after form of life until we finally break the cycle of karma and get it right. Even atheists, although they would not call it a soul, they would argue that you live on in the legacy you leave behind. And in the memory of of your descendants and your followers, this is why it's very important if you ever, your next trip to North Korea, you go and pay a homage to the Kim family. Because you live on in that legacy. The soul lives on in that legacy. And if not, at least the soul in your DNA. And the immortality of the soul, you see, it poses no problem to human philosophy and religion. It doesn't. And it's captivated human philosophy and religion. As Gerhard Forde, the great theologian, writes, he says, Indeed, so seductive has the exiled soul myth been throughout history that the biblical story itself has been taken captivity by it. I can't tell you how many Christians I have talked to that are literally surprised when I tell them that their faith is actually about a bodily resurrection. Not about you escaping anywhere, but about Jesus coming to you physically as well. The redemption of our bodies. The resurrection of the body. This is what trips people up. We have a body problem. Since the beginning, philosophy and mystery religion has taught that the body is actually evil. And this is in part because in our experience, the source of our trouble is often our bodies. 
They get old. They break down. They can actually work against us. And so this myth has developed that somehow we can escape our bodies. That somehow after like this is like a cocoon and that after death we're going to escape and at last be free and pure, you know, as an orb. But as Christians, we believe none of that. We don't believe it's about escape. Instead, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. This is what St. Paul is teaching. Our bodies physically rise from the dead. For any life there may be apart from the body, that is not fully eternal life. It is not life in abundance, as Jesus put it. And this is my first point. As Christians, we believe in the resurrection of the physical body precisely because we believe that Jesus rose physically from the tomb on the third day. This is not some sort of abstract idea of spirits and orbs. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the first fruits of that new creation. Now, everything I have just said is not at all that practical, is it? Real, yes. Received by faith, yes. Yet practical, in the sense of giving you some sort of improvement plan, no. This isn't what Christianity is about. I remember one time I was uh, coming home from a meeting at the cathedral, and uh, I was up there on 110 and uh, Broadway, and I was waiting for the downtown A train. And uh, I was standing there, and I wasn't in my clericals. I looked like a regular person. And, uh, and so there I was, standing on uh, the platform, and these two Mormon missionaries came out. And my first prayer was, Lord, send them to me. And so I want to talk to them. And, uh, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, they came. And the next thought that literally went through my mind was, welcome to my parlor, said the spider to the fly. And so <clears throat> we got on, and we started talking. And uh, I grew up in the southwest corner of Arizona, so I know, like, I mean, that's Mormon country. And so I know a lot about Mormonism. And so we talked and we talked and we talked, and I just passed all of my streets. And finally, at the J Street stop in Brooklyn, and this is the local from 110 in Broadway, at the J Street stop in Brooklyn, I said, come on. We got off, and I said, come on. After all of the linguistic studies, the debunking of any connection between Mesoamerica and exilic Judaism, I said, you know, do you still believe this? And he said, the missionary said, yes, because it works for me. It helps me be a better person. And you can't argue with that. Fair enough. And sadly, though, It's not the truth. But practically, when you think about it, this is why most people get involved in religion. I've listened to people share their testimonies about converting to Islam. Go online and you can watch tons of it. There's a whole series by Vice about Hispanics converting to Islam. And every single one of them, it has nothing to do with the truth of Islam. It's all about practicality. Judaism. A lot of people convert to Judaism right now because it's practical. You know, we've got to study really hard. The New Age, Jehovah Witnesses, whatever it is, 
99% of the time, this has to do with practicality. It has to do with a life improvement. Sadly, this has become the case in much of Christianity as well, as we've overemphasized our own personal testimonies, as if anyone cares. You know, I used to be a really bad person, and then I met Jesus, and now I'm amazing. You know what I mean? That is actually not the apostolic testimony at all. The apostolic testimony is, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead and made him Lord of all things. And we have to deal with that. And you see, understanding that apostolic testimony that St. Paul is articulating here in this first epistle to the Corinthians is important. Because this is one of the things that sets Christianity apart. It's the only religion in the world whose entire validity actually hangs on its history, not on whether it works for you. Christianity, at the end of the day, is not about practicality. It may not work for you. In fact, if you talk to a lot of Christians in Arab countries, it makes their life a heck of a lot worse. Christianity is true. We believe Jesus actually lived, died, and rose again from the dead. That is what we hang our hats on. And St. Paul could not be more clear about this in our epistle reading today. Check it out. He writes, because there were those that were like, I mean, orb worship was huge in Corinth at the time. They were into Gnosticism and, and orbs and ghosts and phantoms. And he says this, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, he doesn't say, well, I hope it works for you. He says, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith is in vain. So Paul is laying it on the line. He's putting the chips down. The issue here is not, does Christianity work for you? The issue is, is it true? So, for example, Mormonism may work for you, but the fact is, it is not historically true. There's nothing valid about it in history. Islam may work for you, but if you've ever read the Quran, especially with regards to the figures of the Old Testament and Jesus, it's not true. And this is my second point. When we as Christians talk about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we are not talking about a blind faith in a story that makes us better people. Count me out. As Christians, when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we are talking about the historical fact that outside of Jerusalem, during the reign of Pontius, when Pontius Pilate was governor, Jesus rose from the dead, whether it is practical for you or not. And Paul lays out, he says, if Jesus physically did not raise from the dead, if it's not true... St. Paul lays out the dire consequences as a result. And there's a flow to these consequences if you read the epistle reading. First he says that our proclamation, or in other words, our preaching, is what I am doing here, what Ben does up here, is a total waste of time. It's in vain. It's empty. And because it's empty, your faith is in vain. I mean, really, what is the point? 
Third, which I think is the worst, St. Paul says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. As I said, it may be a sincere lie. It may be a pious lie, a helpful lie. But if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then I'm misrepresenting God. And if God has been misrepresented, then forth your faith is futile. And you are still in your sin. And if still in your sin, finally, as he says, we are to be most pitied. Because in actuality, all you have is an invisible sky fairy that we pray to for favors to help us through life. And maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. However, hear me today. And I'm going to echo St. Paul and proclaim to you, your faith in Jesus is not in vain, because in fact, in fact, it's verifiable in history. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. And the meaning of first fruits here is a reference to harvest festivals and the harvest time. And that means that this is just, Jesus is just the first one. And he kicks open the gates of death and hell so that the rest of us, the rest of the fruit will eventually go through. And so what this means for you is that my proclamation today is not in vain. It's not a waste of your time. We need to hear it. And if, our, if the proclamation is not in vain, then what I'm talking about, which is our faith, is not futile. And if it's not futile, for God's grace and forgiveness is in actuality real. And if that grace and forgiveness are real, then so is new life in him, which is now yours in Jesus. For there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And ultimately what this means is that your salvation is real and that death will not hold you. And this is my third point. Because Jesus has physically risen from the grave, death is not the final word. And you too will physically rise from the dead and be made alive. And so then, as our prayer book states at the funeral service, even at the grave, we can make our cry. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. What a bizarre thing to say, if it's only a metaphor. For the grave now for you, dear Christian, is simply a temporary place of rest until we rise as new creations in the world that is to come. Let me conclude with this. So, what has this done for us in the here and now? Well, as you leave this place and go back home, or to your work, or to wherever you got to go, What this promise means of Jesus rising from the dead, really doing it, is that it means that you have hope in this life. For Christ is risen from the dead means that you have hope. And because our ultimate enemy does not have the final say over us, and that we have truly been justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, we are free to love. 
We are free to serve. We're free to hope. We're free to endure. We're free to embrace. We're free to go. We're free to forgive. And it means in a moment we can come and gather around this table, the supper of the Lamb, and eat and drink. For tomorrow, you and I live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.